Definitely Baby acknowledges the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri Willem and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation, of the land on which we record and share our stories. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and future, and recognise this unceded land on which we live, work and learn always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everybody, welcome to the second episode of our lovely VBAC mini-series. For anyone who's new here, this series is super close to my heart as I'm planning my own VBAC for January next year and I'm so passionate about bringing all of this information to you and taking it on and learning it all myself. In today's episode, we're joined by Physio Laura from her own podcast, Pregnancy with Physio Laura and her online program, The Pregnancy Posse. She's here to unpack with us some of the important things we can do physically, emotionally, and mentally during pregnancy to prepare our bodies and babies for VBAC. She also shares her own empowering journey to a home birth VBAC after two cesareans. I got so much out of this chat and I'm sure that you will too. I'll hand over to the lovely Laura now. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I'm so excited to chat to you. Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. I'm excited as we were chatting about before. Mm -hmm. VBAC is a real passion of ours and Mm -hmm. we could talk all day about this topic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm excited to share it. Yes. So bloody excited. Yeah. Can you, (laughs) I loved your, um, your series on your own podcast. I listened to that probably in a day or two. I just inhaled all of it into my psyche. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was wonderful. Can you tell us what some of the key factors that can influence um the likelihood of a successful don't know how I feel about that language in itself but a successful VBAC yeah it's so funny you say that because when I saw this question I was like I feel so funny sometimes about like criteria because Mm. I think sometimes having had my own personal experience in hearing from so many VBAC mamas but when you're told that you don't fit the criteria that looks mm. like you might have a successful VBAC, it can be really demoralizing to your confidence, to your self-belief because you go, oh, but I am in that high risk category or that less successful category and therefore my chances are lower, right? So I just want to preface it by saying I've had two cesareans. So I was definitely in that category of like your chances are lower, right? The more cesareans you have, according to the statistics, the lower your chances of VBAC. But I think we need to think beyond that. So what I wanted to do is maybe share what is like, um, you know, recorded as the things that make a successful VBAC, but then to zoom out of that just a tiny bit. So sorry mm-hmm. if I'm going rogue on your question. No, it's so fine. But we know, we know that things like um, if you've had a previous vaginal delivery, um, that that can increase your chances of a successful VBAC because you have what they call a proven pelvis. You know, we know that you can Mm -hmm. deliver a baby through that passageway. So that can be a factor that can influence that. We know that women who have a lower transverse incision, which is what most women would have these days with a cesarean section versus say a vertical scar, are more likely to have a successful VBAC. We know that how many C-sections you've had prior, like I mentioned, can influence your success statistics. So generally more than three previous cesarean sections carries um, 
a smaller risk of having a smaller chance, sorry, of having a successful, that's a hard word, (laughs) VBAC. Um, But one of the most critical and important influencing factors is your care team and your provider. And I was trying so hard to find the statistic on this because um, when I interviewed the VBAC link, they shared it and I just, I, I couldn't find it. So I apologize. But when you have a supportive VBAC provider versus a non-supportive or what they call a tolerant VBAC sub- provider, your chances of having a successful VBAC are enormously high. And like, I, I wish I could remember the stat because I know women love numbers, but that's huge. And I think that one is a commonly overlooked one because we look at ourselves and we look at, well, how can we change this? How can, is there something with my pelvis? Is there something about, you know, the size of my baby? Is there something about how long I gestate for? Like we look at all these factors on us, but one of the biggest, most influential factors is who's around you, who's supporting you, who's cheering you on, who do you feel comfortable and safe with? Because we know so much of birth is about feeling supported and feeling safe. And that dramatically influences our chances of having a successful VBAC. So the difference between say a VBAC supportive provider versus a VBAC tolerant Mm -hmm. provider which is very important. I've been through this myself and so I I didn't understand it at the time, but in hindsight, I now get it. Someone who's, say, VBAC tolerant might look like, yes, I will allow you or, you know, maybe even support you to have a VBAC, but under these 500 conditions, (laughs) you know, you can't gestate over 39 weeks. You can't have any outliers, you know, gestational Mm -hmm. diabetes or high blood pressure or anything, you know, outside of what is considered normal. You can't have had more than one previous cesarean. You can't uh, not be monitored. Like you have to be on a monitor 24-7. You know, like there's a million things that might be on that list, but that starts to suggest that someone's what they call tolerant as opposed to truly supportive. Whereas someone that is supportive might look like, I really believe you can do this and I trust you and I'm listening to your preferences and your desires and your fears and we're working on this collaboratively, like we're equal in terms of who gets to contribute to the conversation. You're obviously contributing different things because, you know, they are an expert in their field and you're an expert in your body. So you're not equal in terms of, you know, necessarily your skill set or your knowledge, but you're equal in terms of who can come to the table and who can say, hey, I'm not feeling good about this. And it can be this collaborative arrangement as opposed to feeling like you can't speak up, you can't voice your preferences or you're coerced or, you know, like made to feel like your voice isn't valid. So yeah, I think that's really important to note that when it comes to successful VBAC, one of the most important factors is your care provider. So I think it's worth really putting a lot of time and effort into thinking about who you want on your birth team. And I, I heard someone recently talking about like, um, inviting people to your birth. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like as in being really discerning with who am I inviting into the room? Because you get, you know, you in so many ways you get to choose that. It's not just this, oh, well, I guess whoever comes, comes. Mm-hmm. And if I don't like their opinion, if you're having a birthday party and you don't like your Auntie Jan because she has terrible opinions and you don't see eye to yeah. eye, you're not going to invite her, right? So like same goes, birth is huge. It's it carries with you for the rest of your life. So you want to make sure that the people in the room and the people supporting you are 
are truly supporting and you feel safe and comfortable with them. So I might have taken that somewhere different, but I think it's really important to 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 really highlight how important that part of a successful VBAC is. And that even if, because I know there's VBAC calculators and things like that out there, and there's a lot of debate about whether they're actually valid and, you know, they're often used with small numbers of women and they're going through things like what your age is, your BMI, you know, previous attempts mm. at labouring or or previous births and whatnot. And it then produces out this percentage to say, hey, Chelsea, you have a 44% chance of having a successful VBAC. And I think that can go both ways because if you happen to just tick the boxes that have been studied that, you know, show that maybe your chances are slightly higher, that might give you a really good confidence boost because you might have a really high score. But there's women with low scores that that could really knock their confidence. Absolutely. They can absolutely go on to have a VBAC. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't fit that category of, you know, what people thought would make a successful VBAC and I had a very successful VBAC. So Mm -hmm. I just think it's really good to zoom out of some of these criteria and just sit with what feels right for you as well. Mm, Yes, I love that. I think it's so important as we were talking about before we hit record, like language is just so important and especially the language of the care provider that you choose. And as I mentioned to you, I just, yeah, I wasn't feeling supported by the original kind of care provider. And now I've, with our new the midwife that we've chosen to go with, who I'm really excited about when I was talking about our previous birth and labor, something about the language must have like twigged in her. And she was just, she said to me, you know, your body didn't fail. I just want you to know, like, there's nothing wrong with your body. Even though the language can make you feel that way, you did nothing wrong. Like you you were doing everything to try and birth your baby vaginally and yeah, just you were on the clock at the hospital and that's kind of, yeah. Mm, It's so powerful. And I do Mm -hmm. think like so much of that language then creates these deep seated beliefs about your body, which then creates the disconnect from your body, which is exactly what you need if you want to be back and to be able to fully trust yourself again. But I think it's good to, yeah, recognize it for what it is. Like you failed to progress to the set of standards that have been devised that women need to go by, you know, and so many people do not fit the categories of, you know, like a straightforward. Imagine if we all just gave birth at 39 weeks, we had a six hour labor, babies are in the right positions and they just came out like we'd have no problems. But if you sit outside of that, you know, if your labor goes longer, if you gestate longer than 41 weeks, like Mm -hmm. there's so many things that make you feel like a failure, but your body's perfect. It actually is perfect. It's just that it's unique and there's millions of people on this planet and we can't expect everyone to give birth exactly the same way. We're all going to have our own unique way of doing it. And it's like, your body didn't fail. Your body just didn't comply to the set of standards that it needed to to fit that system. And I think that's really important. It's not easy though. Like that's hard work to do is to really trust yourself again, but it's important work. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I love that. Could you share some statistics on VBAC with us? Yes. Yes. So Mm -hmm. as you know, I interviewed the VBAC link on my podcast because Mm -hmm. What I found on my own VBAC journey was that there's a lot of fear mongering and there's a lot of talk about 
this doubles your risk of uterine rupture and all these big scary things. But I found it really hard to actually find what is the accurate data? Like what do we actually know about this? Because I'm just getting told a lot of scary things. But we all have our own risk appetite, right? So what is considered a risk for you is going to be different for me. What what yeah. I am happy to accept as my version of acceptable risk is so different to somebody else. So it's really important that we can be truly informed. And by being truly informed, it means we know the statistics and we don't just be told, you know, all these big scary things because that's just, that's not true data, you know, like your baby is going to die is not accurate. And, you know, your uterus is going to rupture is not accurate. So it's like, we really need to be able to zoom out. So I interviewed the VBAC language. I know you're going to, and it's going to be an amazing Mm -hmm. episode. (laughs) And I pulled so much from their amazing, they love stats. And if I'm honest, I actually don't love doing that research so much myself, but I love being able to absorb it from someone who loves it. Mm, Me too. And Julie and Megan just love that. Um, And I got a lot of information from Hazel Keedle, who I know you're going to have as well. She's an amazing researcher in this field. And so I wanted to share just the ones I pulled out for today, which I think are really interesting because they're often the ones that we don't know about. Well, me, myself, I didn't know about this when I was going on my VBAC journey. So as I was saying earlier, I think it's really important to know that, well, let's start with 10% or 12% potentially in Australia of women who have had a previous C-section go on to attempt a VBAC. That in and of itself is really important to know. That is such a low number and that just shows where we're at with VBAC. It's not often offered or supported for women who have had a previous cesarean. So you need to kind of acknowledge, okay, I'm in the minority. Not a lot of women are doing this, so this may not be easy. You can't expect it to be like, yeah, go you, have a VBAC. That's awesome. You're going to probably come up against a lot of challenges because it's just not the done thing. It's getting there. Like I think the notion of once a Caesar, always a Caesar is definitely being phased out, but we're not, we're not there. Given that, according to the VBAC link, 90% of people who have had a prior C-section are really good candidates for a VBAC. So you compare that 90% are good candidates and 10% are given the option to try. That's alarming, really alarming. So I think that's important to sit with first. And then for those that go on to have a, a attempt to VBAC, 60 to 80% are successful. That's amazing. I did not know this. I thought that VBAC was just this slim chance of happening. Whereas that's, that's over half, like that's actually really, really high. And I don't know the exact stats on this, but Hazel Keedle shared this recently. If you then birth at home, which most people would consider crazy and dangerous and what are you doing, your Mm -hmm. statistics of having a successful VBAC are higher. So it's like your model of care and your environment then goes on to influence those success rates even more. So I think that's really important for women to know. Now, I think what's also important to know from a stats point of view is about uterine rupture, because I think that is the hot thing on everyone's mind when they're having a VBAC from the you know, the care providers to the woman, there's a lot of fear around rupture. Now, if you're like me, when I went on my journey, I thought a rupture was catastrophic. So I thought a rupture meant something pops open, literally it shreds your uterus in half and you get rushed to emergency and you die. Like that was my version of what a rupture was. Like it's scary. And I was like, whoa, I do not want to do that. So I can understand why so many women who may have that belief 
choose a repeat cesarean, of course. But I want to share with you the stats I know on rupture because I think this is really valid. The risk of rupture for a VBAC is, again, obviously these stats change a little bit, but most consensus is 0.5%, which is one in 200. So again, for some women, they'll go, that is far too high for me. That doesn't feel acceptable. Maybe I looked at that and I was like, sweet, that actually, that's so much better than I was made to believe. I thought it was way more common than that. And then for people like myself who've had two cesarean sections, the risk of rupture doubles, which is what I was told, your risk doubles. And I was like, whoa, that's a big thing, like a double the risk. But mm-hmm. if you then know the data, 0.5 mm-hmm. to 1. So we're going from 1 in 200 to 1 in 100 is your risk for a VBAC too. That was really acceptable to me. And again, that may not be to others, but it's just important to know because if someone says you are doubling your risk of a uterine rupture, you know, if that risk goes from 20 to 40%, I might feel differently about it than it going from half a percent to 1%. So it's really important to actually know the numbers. And then again, because it's really important to know, of those ruptures that do occur, how many of those are good and bad? And what does it actually mean? So one in 16 ruptures are considered catastrophic. So when you then pull that out, from how many women are having ruptures, it means about one in 2,000 VBAC attempts will be catastrophic. And this means death or some sort of major disability. So again, that's really important to know that A, not every uterine rupture is like this big catastrophic event and B, the risk of uterine rupture is what I've just told you. So you now need to sit with that yourself and go, okay, how do I feel about this? Does this feel acceptable or not to me? Um, Another stat that I wanted to pull out was that, and Hazel Keetle shared this in her big VBAC survey that she did, Mm. and I think this is so important to know because this, again, helps you pick a really supportive care environment. And when when I shared earlier that care providers are really influential at your success of having a VBAC, 50%, so half of the women interviewed received hurtful comments on their VBAC journey. That blows, or it doesn't blow my mind in that I'm not surprised, but that's, that's awful. So these are comments ranging from, you know, did you know that your baby could die all the way through to like one lady was told your husband will have a dead wife and a dead baby and have to raise a toddler on their own. Like obviously extreme, but that, that is extreme coercion that does not belong in this space whatsoever so it's just really important again to be able to see that for what it is and go right that suggests that there's a lot of people who aren't VBAC supportive there's a lot of people who are VBAC tolerant or flat out not VBAC supportive so again I think you may not be able to change that and it's not for you to change that but it's for you to take self-responsibility and maybe choose differently right like if you can't have an open conversation with your care provider or if you don't feel like you're being respected and heard and you're being coerced and told hurtful comments then why would you stay like Hazel Keetle she'll explain all this so she's just such a great mentor in this space but she was talking about you know like if you're an athlete and you're choosing a team around you, you wouldn't go and pull out people who are awful. Like you'd be like, no, 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 no. I need someone who's going to support me to actually get to this goal. But so often in this birth slash medical space, we just accept, oh, well, that's just how they are. And I just think it's really good for women to go, no, no, actually, if this isn't feeling right, there's a million other options. So I think that's really important to note. 
Um, let me see if I had any other stats. I thought, oh yeah, I did actually. Um, I thought it was really important to also mention pregnancy intervals because I know a lot of women are like, oh, but I want to have another baby. How long do I have to wait? Mm. And the, unfortunately the evidence is really unclear here. So it was kind of anywhere from (laughs) six to 15 months between pregnancies seemed to carry a smaller risk of rupture as opposed to, um, if you fell pregnant within the six months after giving birth. So that one is not so clear. The last thing I wanted to mention, because again, this was news to me when I was going on my VBAC journey, was coming back to the ruptures. So we know how big the stats are on rupture or how small, depending on how you view it. We know how often those end up catastrophic. But what I don't think a lot of women know are, I've got them written down, ruptures are often picked up in surgery. So a lot of women are in surgery about to have a repeat cesarean and that's when a rupture is picked up. So it's not this like emergency rush, you know, oh my God, your uterus is ruptured, you know, like how we picture it to be, that you can have a uterine rupture without a scar. That was mind-blowing to me. I was like, what? I thought this was only for women with scars, but no, that's not true. You can have Mm -hmm. a rupture prior to labour, so it's not just when your uterus starts contracting. And this was the one that I had no idea about. You can still have a rupture with a cesarean section. So I thought ruptures were only for those women who were laboring and having VBACs. Mm. But hear this stat, right? And this was shared by the VBAC link. A repeat C-section carries a risk of rupture of 88.9 per 100,000 versus the VBAC rupture risk was half of that, which was 43.8. So I know, and again, these are very small numbers. This is per 100,000, but I I don't know about you, but when I was cancelled to have another cesarean section, I was never told there was a risk of my uterus rupturing. It was only ever told to me when I was attempting a VBAC. So I just think it's really important to just ask these questions and explore Ah, oh, okay. Like there's, there's other information that might be out there. So they're the ones I wanted to share because I think they're the ones that are often not shared. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that last one. That's yeah. So fascinating. And mm. it's, yeah, it's so interesting how it is in that VBAC that it's like uterine rupture, uterine rupture and like flashing lights. It's like, yeah. be warned. <laughs> and, 100%. Yeah. When I walked, I had a few hospital appointments as part of my VBAC journey, even though I was having a home birth, but But I felt like every time I walked into a hospital that I had this flashing neon sign above my head that said, two cesareans going for a VBAC because it's just like, it's like you can't escape. Mm -hmm. I kind of wished I'd never told anyone I had a C-section because I just felt like I was treated like this ticking time bomb. (laughs) It was going to explode. And it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just cool to zoom out and see see it for what it actually is and not just what is peddled as the cultural norm and, you know, the current fears and things around it. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. 100%. Wow. Yeah. I hope that that's been illuminating for someone out there because I feel like so many people just don't realize that there is, there is risks with a repeat cesarean as well. And maybe, yeah, for some people, the risks, they they weigh those risks and a repeat cesarean seems like the best for them and that is completely, yeah, that's great. But, yeah, no, breaking down these statistics I think is so interesting and so important because, we're yeah, we're often not told this by 
by providers that, yeah, there is risks involved with that cesarean as well. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to jump on to how we can prepare our bodies for VBACs mm. and what kind of tips and everything you have. I'm so excited to hear. Um, can you tell us what some recommended exercises and physical activities that we can do during pregnancy uh, that can help us prepare our bodies for a VBAC? Yeah. So I, my belief around exercise in the physical body in the lead up to VBAC is exactly the same in the lead up to birth pretty much. Um, so whether it's your first baby or whether it's a VBAC, I feel the same principles apply. And it's just about a variety of movement. I think it's really important for our pelvises for optimal baby positioning and really healthy, you know, mobile pelvises that aren't rigid and tight in certain spots that we just move in a variety of different positions. So I encourage as many women as possible just to sit a little less than what we currently do at the moment because we do have a culture that sits a lot. We're very sit heavy. You know, we sit to eat, we sit to drive to work. If we have a desk job, we sit all day at work and then we sit to Mm -hmm. watch TV at night and we go to bed and we sit all day long on these posteriorly tilted pelvises. We tighten our pelvic floor without realizing it. We get really tight in all the wrong spots. And you know, that's not super conducive to a really mobile open pelvis for baby to nuzzle down and be in a great position. That doesn't mean that you can't have a VBAC, by the way, okay? Because I think that's also (laughs) really important to know because like myself, I went on a journey of thinking that, oh my God, if I I sat too long, oh no, what if this is, you know, Mm -hmm. hampering my chance? Me at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 100%. (laughs) Um, And I'll get I'll I'll get to that at the end. Something my doula told me, but yeah. So other things, I just think in general, it's really our bodies are designed to move, right? So we are very sedentary as a culture in Western culture. Like we really don't move a lot, and we tend to do like these intense bursts of exercise, but then be sedentary for the rest of the day. And there's a lot of evidence to show that that versus just moving all day long in different positions like it's actually better just to move all day long in a variety of positions than to do a 45 minute crazy gym workout but then to be slouching and sitting down all day so it's just really healthy to think about moving more as opposed to yeah like the hectic I've got to fit in a 45 minute gym class just move more like go for a walk instead of you know uh driving your car, like if you can go for a 10-minute walk to the shops rather than driving your car, if you can take the stairs rather than taking the elevator, if you can stand up to take a phone call rather than sit down and take a phone call, like you're just thinking of different ways that you can move your body, get more movement in during the day or at least just change your pelvic position. So if you are sitting at a desk or standing at a desk, sit on a Fitball, cross your legs, sit on a yoga bolster, like think of really creative different ways that you can get out of just sitting on your bum in the exact same position all day long. That's really, really helpful. And then zooming out of that because exercise does feel good rather than just movement. You know, it feels good to get the endorphins pumping. There's so many benefits of actually getting a bit of huff and puff happening, of strengthening our muscles. That really does help us have great pregnancy, birth and postpartum outcomes. So I'm definitely not dismissing that exercise is not important. It's so important. Pregnancy exercises that I love are things like, things that like get high like 
uh, output. So, you know, like really good results, but with low impact because we want to be mindful of protecting our pelvic floor and our abdominals and our softening bodies. So it's often not the time to be like smashing the pavement and like going really hard. It's often the time to be pulling back from that a little bit. So things like stationary cycling or walking or dancing or swimming or doing like a pregnancy aqua class or Pilates or yoga or my pregnancy posse workouts, you know, like Mm -hmm. really good resistance band exercise or lightweights, those sorts of things. There's so many amazing pregnancy exercises out there. And I do think it's really valid for emotional and physical benefits to keep your body moving. If you have good strength, you're going to labor well. Labor is a marathon and you need to have that physical endurance to be able to support yourself. Like, I was awake for three days and three nights and I dare say if I didn't have the strength behind me, like I would have just, I was exhausted anyway, but you know, I just would have been so exhausted. So I think it's really important to get our bodies moving. Now's the time to really tune into your body and go, what do I feel like I need as well? Because what you were doing prior to pregnancy may not be a good fit anymore. It may not feel good anymore. And I often find women who come into my program are really nervous to exercise because all of a sudden they're pregnant and they don't know what to do and they don't want to do the wrong thing. So they often actually stop exercising. So I think it's really important to know that majority of exercise is relevant for pregnancy, but there are some that aren't. And it's just really important to know that you have a good instructor or a good coach or a good physio, whoever's on your team that actually understands and appreciates and respects the growing pregnant body and can help you move in pregnancy with that respect, because if you're thrashing yourself like you were pre-pregnancy, you're not respecting all the changes that are happening in your body. Um, and that can lead to injury and that can lead to all sorts of things. So yeah, in terms of physical prep, all those pregnancy exercises that I mentioned, moving your pelvis in a variety of positions. And then what I want to zoom out and tie it up with, because this is where I got to, and there's a minority amount of women who can't exercise in pregnancy for whatever reason, you know, maybe they've got other medical conditions or whatnot. And I think sometimes they think then that their chances of having a really good birth are slim because, because they are not strong and they're not conditioned. And if you're someone like me on my VBAC journey, I was like, but I have to do the thousand exercises because then I can tick the box and say, I did everything within my power to prep myself. I have to do all the spinning babies exercises and I have to (laughs) lie upside down and all of it. (laughs) And I just remember my doula said to me, Laura, birth will happen. And it was just (laughs) profound to me because I was like, I I didn't believe that to be true. I actually deep down thought that I had to, it's like an exam. I had to pass those 10 things to be able to qualify to have that birth. And it's just not the case. It's actually just not the case. Our bodies are so intelligent. They're so amazing. Even if you didn't do 20 squats a day, birth happens. (laughs) Birth will happen. You know, like it's so much bigger Mm -hmm. than just the exercise that we do. Um, You know, women in comas give birth. That's that's how amazing the bodies are. So I just think after saying all of that, not at all retracting anything I've said because there is so much benefit in that but from a mental point of view if you're someone who's finding yourself being like got to tick the boxes I've got to do all the things because then that's going to set me up yeah it has so many benefits but also there's that element that we need to go and now I let go and birth will still happen even if I forgot to do my hip flexor stretch today so Mm -hmm. Mm, I'm so glad you said that thank you (laughs) because yeah I feel like in a way I 
am kind of doing that. You know, I feel, although I've worked on the thought that, you know, my body didn't fail last time, you know, it wasn't something to do with my body that failed. And this time I'm like, oh, I've got to be more fit than I was last time. I've got to do this. I've got to see a pelvic floor physio. I've got to do, you know, X, Y, Z. But yeah, to just take a step back and just not put everything on that because I feel like then maybe that adds more to the feeling of quote-unquote failure that can come if you don't achieve that VBAC, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. It's tricky though. It's it's such an amazing personal evolution and growth because it's this, you know, you're always towing this line of like wanting to do something differently this time. So wanting to get more education, wanting to learn more, wanting to do something different. But then there's always got to be that element of surrender. And I guess you've got to marry the two together, like information and education with surrender. Because if you just surrender, but you don't have information, you'll just go passively through the system, right? And that's not going to get necessarily the best unique outcomes for you. You might be alive and your baby might be alive, but all of the other things that are important may not happen. But if you also try to rigidly control it and, you know, like you, you could set yourself up for really like big feelings of disappointment or, you know, like you've failed in some way. And so I think it's tricky. It's so tricky. And I have got no perfect answer for it, but I just think being aware of it, I'm sure there's many women who will go, oh yes, actually, I think I'm doing that too. And there's probably an element of me that needs to let go now and trust, trust that birth happens, you know, even if you didn't, yeah, do it all, it will still happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And you mentioned optimal fetal positioning a little bit before, but can you tell us about how that contributes to your VBAC experience and what techniques we can use as pregnant people to kind of encourage it? I know that I'm already thinking about, you know, I'm 18 weeks now, but I'm thinking about how I'm sitting every time on the couch. I try and like lay down on my side if we're watching a show. I'm like, I can't, I can't sit back and yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all of these things because last time I had a posterior labor which was very long and yeah baby never turned but yeah yeah tell us, and tell us all the things yeah. I reckon that's probably one of the most common questions I get asked inside the posse yeah. it's like optimal fetal positioning so I have a lot of thoughts on this and I'm going to try and make them really clear and coherent I think because our culture like we sit all day all of the things I said before I do think We do need to do work on making sure our pelvises are mobile and, you know, really open and soft and can move in the ways that they need to move to be able to. We we aren't the same as our ancestors. We do have a very different lifestyle. So I do think we need to be really diligent about doing work to try and combat that, right? So I do see such a place for your spinning babies exercises for, you know, chiropractic, osteopathic, physiotherapy treatments to alleviate pelvic pain or just to correct tightness in your muscles or tension or pelvic floor tension, whatever it is that might be your problem, 100% for all of that acupuncture, like whatever your modality is, there's so many out there. Um, I do think it's really helpful. Like I working in the clinic saw so many overactive pelvic floors, you know, and I just don't think that that, 
I think that's so prevalent these days because of how we are, like our lifestyle, we're stressed, we're anxious, we sit a lot, we hold a lot of tension. And so there are things that we have to actively work towards to try and reduce that, right? Like I'm so conscious as you're saying that now that my my pelvic floor feels a bit tense from being in this position, Mm -hmm. but I'll change later and I'm not going to sit like this all day. But, you know, our culture, it sets us up for really tight pelvises, really tense tummies and pelvic floors and things like that. So like any sort of modality that connects you to your body, helps you breathe deeper, helps you relax your muscles and removes tension is a winner when it comes to pregnancy. Absolutely. So again, whatever that is for you, definitely go for it. Your spinning babies exercises are all about creating more room in the pelvis to allow baby to come through. So I think I actually interviewed a doula slash chiropractor recently. And I thought he shared really well on this. And he was talking about, it's not about like, say, if you're having chiropractic care, because I think this can be a misconception for body work during pregnancy. It's not about, you're not changing, like you're not opening a pelvis all of a sudden. And then, you know, like um, birth is amazing. What it is, is just about not restricting your pelvis. So you're just trying to, your pelvis is your pelvis, right? Like it's really not you're not dramatically going and like moving at 10 degrees or anything like that. Like it's a bony rigid structure, but what you're trying to do is to balance all the muscles and the fascia around it so that it sits in a really nice position with the goal that that means then baby can get in the best position possible because babies can get in all sorts of positions. Posterior is really common, which is when their spine is on your spine. Doesn't mean you can't have a vaginal birth. So that's really good to know for VBAC mamas as well, because a lot of people freak out about, oh, but my baby's posterior. What does this mean? I had a posterior VBAC. Like it, it happens and it can still happen. Often what it means is labor might be a bit longer. You might have more back pain but it can still happen. But ideally, I think if you could pick between an anterior and a posterior position, most people would probably pick anterior. It seems to be, not that I've had it myself, but a more comfortable, more efficient way to deliver a child out of your (laughs) vaginal as opposed to posterior, you know, and then there's breach. That's another version of positioning as well. And I think that's like, I probably won't go into that because that is like a whole topic for another day. Like that's a very (laughs) big thing as well. Um, but I think it's really important to move our pelvises, do all the work that you need to do to make sure your pelvis is in a really supple, beautiful position for birth. And then similar to the exercise bit that I said before, then step back and trust that this is going to work out exactly as it needs to. Because what I see a lot of with say my posse members is this stress and this tension in those like final weeks leading up to birth where we're hyper fixated on what position our baby is in. And women who are like literally stressed out of their brains because baby hasn't engaged yet. That's a huge one, right? Didn't happen for me either. Babies who are still posterior, babies, you know, like whatever the thing is, babies who are not, you know, quote unquote, in the right position yet. It just freaks women out. It absolutely freaks them out. They think that there's something wrong with their body. My baby's never engaged. And I started thinking, well, that must mean because there's not enough room for them to drop. And then I just let go of that in my VBAC. I never checked what position my baby was in. I never bothered to wonder if they were engaged or not. I just let it be what it needed to be. And I eventually went into labor and I gave birth. And I know it's not that simple. And there's a million people out there who will say it's not that simplistic, but I think the mindset needs to be that simplistic because 
By 39 weeks, there's not a hell of a lot you can do from a positioning point of view. And I think there needs to be this element of trusting that your baby's in the position. It's so smart. Like your baby is so smart. It's in the position it needs to be in to get out. And it knows what to do to get out, whether it's posterior or anterior. It's not confused. It knows what it needs to do. Let's just not pathologize that, I think. Like let's just do all the things we can but then have that element of I hand this over now. I trust my body. I trust my baby. I trust this process. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. And you're the perfect person to talk on this, but can you tell us about uh, why pelvic floor health is so crucial during pregnancy and childbirth and maybe what some exercises or practices that we can do to strengthen and support our pelvic floors in preparation for a VBAC. For sure. So I think a lot of people have never connected with their pelvic floor prior to being pregnant. And a lot of people, to be honest. I know honest, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't even connect with it until there's a problem. And often that might be after birth. And then this is the first time they've gone, ah, oh, there's this part of my body I never knew existed. I never knew how to turn it on, turn it off. So I think it's really cool to be in tune with your pelvic floor, to know, is your pelvic floor on right now? Is it off right now? Do you hold it in a lot of tension? Does it feel okay? Can you control urine? Can you control wind? Can you control your bowels? Do you have any problems going to the toilet? Do you have any pain with sex? Like there's so many things that the pelvic floor is involved in that we have no idea. For example, sex. So a lot of women who have painful sex are like, ah, never linked a tight pelvic floor with painful sex which I understand we're not taught this at high school. So it's not often until we have babies that then that area is highlighted because when you have a vaginal birth, your pelvic floor stretches up to two and a half times its normal length. Like that's enormous. No other muscle in the body is even capable of stretching that far without breaking, without snapping. But our pelvic floor is incredible. It knows how to do that and be okay. So it's really important we tune in with this muscle. And when I say tune in, I think in the past we used to go, well, it's all about stronger, longer, more, like get that tight pelvic floor because you don't want to leak, you know, you don't want to have a prolapse, you don't want to have all these problems. But I think what we can all as physios acknowledge now is that far too many women have too tight a pelvic floor. Far too many women have an overactive pelvic floor. And so if you have a pelvic floor that actually needs to relax, it's too tense, you don't know how to switch it off you go and smash out Kegels, you're only going to make your problems worse. And we know that such a big part of pushing a baby out is that you need to be able to relax those muscles. You need to be able to stretch those muscles, not fight that. Like our body does that. You don't need to consciously relax your muscles two and a half times their regular length, but you need to not fight that, right? You need to be able to allow that process to happen. So if your pelvic floor has only ever been in this short rigid state, it's going to have a hard time knowing what to do when it comes to birth. Again, this does not mean you cannot have a vaginal birth. So please just know that like women with tight pelvic floors and overactive pelvic floors can still have a vaginal birth because our bodies are intelligent. Our bodies are amazing and they know what to do. But if we're looking at ways that we can help ourselves, absolutely. We know that you can definitely prevent your chance of having pelvic floor injuries if you learn to relax your pelvic floor, if you learn to have a coordinated pelvic floor, all of these things, they're really, really helpful. So I suggest that women definitely touch base with a pelvic floor physio during their pregnancy. You don't need to have a problem to go to a physio. You don't need to have an issue. You can just go to a physio and say, hey, I don't know anything about my pelvic floor and I'd really love to connect with these muscles before I have a baby. 
so that, you know, I'm really aware of them. I want to know, am I on, am I off? How do I turn on? How do I turn off? How long can I hold for? Is my endurance any good? Like, you know, how is everything functioning down there? Just like a pelvic floor health check, I think is really, really valid because it's also really good to have a baseline measure because you then go on to have a birth and then postpartum may potentially have issues. Not everyone does. This is not to scare you. Not everyone will leak. Not everyone will have a prolapse, but we know that it's common, right? And regardless of how you feel after birth, I think it's really important to have another pelvic health check so you know where you're at so that you can prepare yourself to return to exercise. You can prepare yourself to return to the activities you were doing. But then you have a baseline measure that you can compare against as well. So let's say you have a small prolapse after birth. It's really helpful to know, did you actually have a small prolapse before birth? Because that's also not uncommon. A lot of women who haven't had a baby will go, what? How can you have a prolapse? But if you're being constipated your whole life and you've always strained to go to the toilet, you could have a small prolapse before birth. So, you know, like not to freak you out then after birth, if you've got still a small prolapse, but you know, that's the first time you've known about it. Just little things like that. I think it's really, really helpful to have a baseline to tune in with those muscles and then to go and get them assessed after birth, regardless of whether you have a C-section or a VBAC. It doesn't matter because your pelvic floor is still such an important component of pelvic stability of continence control of sexual function all of those things and pregnancy in and of itself puts a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on your pelvic floor so pregnancy in and of itself can be a risk factor for things like incontinence so it's really really good to get it checked out so in terms of connecting with your pelvic floor did you want me to run you through like a little exercise absolutely please okay okay. so let's assume we're all sitting Uncross Mm -hmm. your legs. I'll do it right now. (laughs) Yeah. And just slightly lean forward if you can, because then you'll feel like that padded area of your underwear is kind of pressing against the chair a bit more. So your pubic bone is that bony bit at the front of your pelvis. So just like at the top of your underwear. And then your tailbone is that little coccyx at the back. So just like kind of at the top of your anal area. And between the pubic bone and the tailbone sits your pelvic floor. Okay, so that's your pelvic floor. First of all, good to know. It's not your big bottom muscles, your glute muscles. It's not your inner thigh muscles. It's not your tummy. It's just that little bit that sits in the padded, you know, section of your underwear where a pad might sit if you're menstruating. So then you've got your urethra at the front, which is where urine comes out of. Behind that sits the vagina, which is where babies come out of or penises or fingers or tampons might go in. And then behind that is your anus, which is where poo comes out of. Now, those three passageways can tighten when you squeeze your pelvic floor and can open when you relax your pelvic floor. So how I get women to think about it initially is to close your eyes, relax all of your muscles. So I don't want you to grimace your face. I don't want you to hold your breath. I don't want you to suck your belly in or squeeze your big bottle muscles. I want you to keep everything relaxed. It should be a secret. Now, I want you just to gently squeeze around your anus. Just tighten around just there, not your tummy, not your legs. Don't grimace your face and hold. Keep holding. Keep holding. Keep breathing. And now let it go. Now, firstly, you should feel something. So you should feel some movement. It might be a tightening, it might be a lift, it might be a squeeze. And then you should feel some movement when you relax as well. So it's really important you feel both because you need to be able to turn it on, but you also need to be able to let it go. Now, if you can do that, then what I get you to do is try that again. So reset all your muscles, keep everything relaxed, squeeze around the anus, now squeeze around the vagina, and now squeeze around the urethra. Almost like you're zipping from the back to the front. And now let it all go. So some people might like the idea of an elevator. 
like you're squeezing and then you're lifting to level one, level two, level three, and then you're relaxing. There's lots of different analogies, but that might be a really good place for you just to go, is there movement or not? Can I do this without turning all of my other muscles on? And then go see a physio. Mm, great. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really helpful because I feel like I've been trying to do some some pelvic floor exercises and I think I hold like like I start to pull in everywhere like my t- I feel like my tummy pulls in like it, it it all just like all tightens which is probably not quite the right idea. And I, <laughs> I think a lot of women do that initially because you're trying to find the muscles so you're trying to turn everything on. But also I think we try too hard because we think of the pelvic floor as like a big bicep and we're like yeah just pull it on pull it off. It's, it's a small muscle, so we need to think subtle. So when we're squeezing around the anus and the vagina, we're not thinking like this big almighty pull, like think subtle. And I find if you think subtle, you'll still get the movement in your pelvic floor but without all the extras. So, yeah, I'd try that for you. Just try more subtle because I think we often think it needs to be this big grandiose movement but it's actually really subtle. Really, really subtle. Yeah, amazing. Oh, thank you. That was a, that was a great little practice. Yeah, so... You've shared some beautiful ways that we can prepare physically, which are all so important and can really help us to have positive birth experiences. But we know that the emotional and the mental side is such a big part of birth in general and especially in VBAC as well. Can you share with us some ways that pregnant individuals can prepare emotionally and mentally for VBAC? Yeah, I think this is the biggest work, to be honest. I think for everyone I know on the VBAC journey, there is always an element of distrust in your body, um, of low self-belief that you can actually do this, of fear, you know, whatever that might be. And I think that's really unique to VBAC. I really do. And so I think the emotional, mental work is the big work. I think that mm-hmm. is the most important work. So I think so much of it is about learning to trust yourself again, learning to connect with your body again, learning to lean into your intuition because that so much of that is trusting yourself, like knowing that your body knows best and it will tell you what it needs. And that's not easy if you've come from a place of where you've just disconnected, maybe you've externalized your trust to a care provider. And that hasn't worked out for you. So I think it's really important. Like journaling can be a really healthy way to try and process all of these thoughts, talking to someone that you like really cares for you, who knows and loves you. So if you've got great family or friends that you can debrief with, but if not a professional, there's so many beautiful professionals out there. And it could be your midwife that you've got for your current VBAC journey. Like that sounds for you, for example, like it's already been so helpful in helping to dismantle some of these belief patterns. But you know, there's doulas out there, there's midwives out there that do like one-on-one birth debriefs or birth preparation or just some sort of counseling service to help you just unpack what's actually going on. Like what are the unconscious beliefs that you have around your body or your ability to have a VBAC and just being able to acknowledge them, bring awareness to them and then express them. That's sometimes all you need to do. Like you don't actually need to fix it. You just need to go, oh, you know, that's that's really interesting. That's a belief I have. And just bringing light to it is sometimes enough for it to dissolve. And other times you might need to sit with it and do some more work around it or do some more counseling or therapy or whatever it is. But if, if that doesn't feel like the right route, yeah, journaling can be really helpful. Just writing down your thoughts, meditations, 
they can be really helpful too just to connect inwards and there's lots of meditations you can do connecting with your baby connecting with your room things like that um I think surrounding yourself with really positive birth stories with birth stories that affirm and highlight what you want and need and maybe dispel the fears that you have so for example I'm a longer gestator. So like I don't give birth before 42 weeks apparently. And that's just my mm-hmm. norm, right? And before my VBAC, I'd never really had an experience of labor. I'd had like some pre-labor. Anyway, so my belief was like, oh, I'm this like crazy elephant gestator. I <laughs> like, you know, no one else seems to gestate this long. And I just had this belief that I was like, there's something maybe wrong with me. Like, why won't, will my body ever go into labor? And then I just started surrounding myself with stories of women who gave birth at 43 weeks. Someone was 44 weeks. And I was like, wow. ah, it started to become real normal to me because I was surrounding myself with these stories of women who gave birth later. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's not this weird, crazy, oh my God, my baby's going to die vibe. It's just like another variation. And it became really normal to me. And I surrounded myself with a lot of VBAC home birth stories because that was the path I was going down. And so I wanted to affirm that, yeah, this happens. There's other stories like, you know, stories are so powerful. And we we would have back in the day sat by the campfire and shared these with our aunties and our sisters and our friends. And we just don't do that so much anymore. Or in fact, often the ones you hear are the really scary, alarming you know, we tend to have that negative bias where we talk about the things that went badly as opposed to how, you know, how many times has someone just come out with, oh my God, I had the most amazing birth ever. You know, like it's just, and I think there's an element of people don't want to brag or people don't want to be insensitive. So those stories probably aren't spoken about as much, but yeah, just surrounding yourself with really beautiful, positive, uplifting birth stories that need to suit, you know, maybe your fear is, an issue with the third stage or something about the placental delivery or whatnot, go and surround yourself with stories of women who maybe had something like you and then went on to have epic third stages. Everything was fine. It was uncomplicated. Like just create a new bias in your head about what is normal and what to expect. I think that can be really, really powerful as well. So they would probably be my main tips, like some sort of journaling or debriefing or unpacking of what stories you have. So for example, for myself, I didn't realize these were the stories I had until I went on my VBAC journey, but I had a real belief that my body was broken and that my pelvis was not able to give birth, that there was something wrong with it. I come from a lineage of C-sections. So I was like, well, it makes sense. Like my pelvis, it's not meant to do this. You know, I had midwife tell me, love, that baby was never coming out of your vagina. So that just reinforced again. Ah, you know, maybe I'm just one of those people that just my pelvis is too small, you know, and I found things to confirm that bias. You know, I remember I used to get this intense lightning crutch in my first two pregnancies, which would just have me like had to stop in the middle of the road sort of thing. And I told myself that that was my baby because I I would ask people and they were like, and I don't like, I get lightning crutch, but not like how you're describing it. Like mine was like, I had to hold my breath. It was awful. And I told myself that was my baby trying to nuzzle down, but it couldn't fit. And so it was hitting all the wrong nerves and it was giving me this sharp pain. Whereas women who had pelvises that could accommodate a baby said they didn't get that intensity because their baby could fit. So for example, that was a story I didn't even realize I had. And then I spoke to my midwife in my VBAC journey. I said to her, I didn't tell her the backstory. I just said, I've been getting this lightning crutch. And she just went, Oh, I love that's beautiful. That's so amazing. That's your baby nuzzling down, getting ready. And I was like, mm. but, but 
in my last two pregnancies, I had it really intense. And I kind of thought that maybe that was actually a sign that something was wrong. And she was like, no, no, that's actually perfect. And I just did a total 180. I was like, oh, exactly the same thing on paper is happening. But my belief around what that means now is different. And then every time I got lightning crutch, I'd be like, hell yeah, my baby's amazing. My baby's trying to nuzzle down. What a legend. As opposed to, oh, this is just another sign that it's just trying really hard and it can't fit. So, you know, like that was just really powerful for me to go, oh no, I actually change what that, I'm making that mean something different now. So yeah, that's just an example of like, being able to unpack and just start to trust yourself again. I think they're the most important things. And then surrounding yourself with the positive story is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it comes back again to what we've been talking about, about that language and that feeling that our bodies are failing rather than it not being that it's kind of what society's telling us and telling women about their bodies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So we spoke about the importance of finding a supportive care provider and birth team, which is, yeah, so important. Can you suggest other than these physical and emotional preparations we can do, what kind of like practical steps can people take during pregnancy to ensure that they have a supportive birth environment for their VBAC? I think really understanding physiological birth. So learning from the likes of like Rhea Dempsey or oh, she's the first that comes to mind because she's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Ina Mae Gaskin, like there's so many old school midwives and birth support women that are really good at explaining physiological birth because I think it's really important when it comes to birth environment to understand what does physiological birth actually look like and how do we actually need to support it. So I love that idea of understanding that how you make a baby is how you birth a baby because I don't think a lot of women even recognize the importance of that. Oxytocin, you know, Dr. Sarah Buckley's work, that you often probably don't feel like getting it on with your partner in a public, you know, area with bright lights and people watching you and you probably don't feel like being intimate and, you know, like really sexy in that moment because that doesn't get oxytocin pumping and oxytocin is the hormone of love. It's also the hormone of labor. So just understanding that how you make love is how you give birth and many hospital environments have got very bright lights with strangers walking in the room and people touching you and talking to you that you've never met before and feeling watched and observed and bright lights in your face and that that physiologically changes your hormones which changes the way you labor and that primarily we're set up we can only labor and give birth if we feel safe and so really understanding what it it takes to feel safe which generally speaking is things like a dark room being unobserved you know not being interrupted and being able to go into your flow birth state and these are things to probably talk about with your care providers before you give birth about what's really important to you like about being interrupted or asked questions or you know like having the lights on and having people walk into your room like you can have really clear boundaries around what feels good for you and what not but I think also understanding what you need to feel safe as well so that's going to be unique to each individual but you need to be able to feel safe in order to have the oxytocin pumping in order to be able to give birth. So when it comes to environment, I think, yeah, just thinking about how can you set up an environment 
in terms of, yeah, the actual room, what do you need? And then the people in the room, the chit chat in the room, the music in the room, the, you know, the lighting in the room to really get oxytocin pumping and support labor. And that all comes back to understanding what is physiological birth? Because we're so far removed from physiological birth these days. Giving birth in a hospital, you often don't actually have a truly physiological birth. And so, a lot of people I don't think actually understand. I think we think sometimes physiological birth is vaginal birth. They're totally different things. So being able to actually understand physiolo- physiology of the hormones and of labor and all of that will help you really appreciate what you need to do to set up a really conducive birth environment. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Beautiful things. I'll take notes for my own <laughs> VBAC journey here for all of those wonderful things you've said. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, so can you give us an overview of your first births in which you had a cesarean? How was that experience for you? So I, at the time, thought I had a really positive birth experience. So my first birth was with a private obstetrician. My first two births were with a private obstetrician. I was healthy, well, had no risk factors, very straightforward births. Like, I got to about 30 something weeks with my first and we were measuring big and that whole big baby talk was starting to happen. I didn't know any different, even though I was a physio and I taught active birth class and I really didn't understand truly the system, cascade of interventions, all of those things. And so I was very much like a very passive player in my experience. I I just really went with the flow. I was like, positively optimistic and just thought everything was going to work out. And I ended up being induced because I had a big baby and I didn't take to the induction. My body didn't dilate whatsoever. Um, Closed tight, you know, closed cervix. And that was that big strong message I carried Mm. through like, oh, my cervix does not like to dilate. And After like a day of trying to get an induction happening, I I think I was 38 plus six, the question was posed like, yeah, you can go on to have a cesarean now or you could go, I believe the whole you could go home thing was peddled as well. However, the mindset I was in was I'd been at hospital, I was here to meet my baby, this was happening and there was very much a lean towards like your baby's big, it's only going to get bigger. So I think it's a good option to get it out now because it's only going to get more complicated if your baby keeps growing. Who knows when you're going to go into labor? You know, like I, even though I, I did have the choice and you always have the choice, I didn't feel, I guess, like I really, like I, I knew where it was swayed towards. So I agreed to have a cesarean section and I bawled my eyes out. I couldn't name the emotion, to be honest. I wasn't, it wasn't like gr- just grief or failure or, it was like everything and I just had this massive breakdown and I was really crying and it's like I was the first person to cry before a C-section the way they were like, are you okay? And I was like, surely people do this all the time. <laughs> but I was just blowing my eyes out. Anyway, and I met my son. It was amazing. Um, we were separated for like half an hour. Again, I didn't know any difference. So I was just like, oh, that's just what happens, you know, like, I came back to the room, you know, I was pretty kind of like dozy. I was a bit out of it. But then the rest was magical. I loved being a mum. I had a great breastfeeding journey, recovered really easily from the C-section. 
And I almost became a bit of like a positive C-section ambassador of like, you know what? You can have a great birth even if you have a C-section. Like I really, I'm, I'm that sort of personality. I'm like a real optimist, positive person. I never sit in the victim mode. I'm always just like, how can I turn this into a really great thing? And so I was like, yeah, I had a great experience of a C-section, which I truly did at the time. It's not until I look back in hindsight and I think I, it was very disempowered. Like they were talking about the tennis while they were pulling my son out. Like it didn't feel like mm. this, but I didn't know any different, right? Like I, I didn't know that birth could look a different way or feel a different way. I just knew what I knew and it was good enough. And I'd had a, you know, quote unquote, great time. So I was like, cool, whatever. But I also obviously had known that I wanted more because I, I didn't opt for a repeat C-section. I wanted a VBAC. I was like, yes, 100% want a VBAC. So I fell pregnant with my daughter 10 months later and I was like, yeah, VBAC all the way. But I didn't change much. So again, I thought I thought I wanted a VBAC, but I never really did the work to really do anything different. So I got the same obstetrician. You know, for the most part, I did the same preparation. I think I did a bit of hypnobirthing this time. But I didn't, you know, I just think I thought that it would just work out because I wanted it to without actually having to go inwards and do the work. And so we got to 40 weeks because, you know, (laughs) I'm a long gestator and, um, yeah, and my body just never went into labour. And so we had this talk about, well, if you get to this stage, it's going to have to be a decision between I actually never was really offered the induction route because my obstetrician was pretty big on like, I don't like to induce after a cesarean section. And to be honest, in hindsight, I'm actually really glad for that because I, I really don't think I would have wanted to go down that failed induction pathway just to end in another cesarean section. And so we got to like nine days over and that was going to be the repeat Caesar day. And by that stage, I'd got to the point where I'm like, I gave it a crack. I don't feel like I could have done much more. I've waited. We haven't rushed this like the last one. It's not 38 weeks. Like we've given myself longer. What's meant to be will be. I was just like, cool. I'm cool with this. So I'd organize like a city staycation with my husband the night before. We're going to have our last hurrah going in the morning, have a city section. And I felt like I was pretty mentally okay with that. And then of course, my daughter threw a total spanner in the works and decided to put me in early labor the day before. (laughs) And I was like, come on, I just wrapped my head around being fine with this. And now I've gone into labor for the first time because I never went into that with my son. So then I had this 24 hour period of contractions and I didn't know what contractions should feel like or But like I couldn't, we went to a movie and we went to dinner and I couldn't concentrate. I was squirming in my chair. I didn't sleep that night, which I think was partially the, oh my God, what do I do about this situation? But also I was uncomfortable and they were happening every five minutes. And because I back then was just such a, didn't want to rock the boat, such a people pleaser, didn't want to put people out. My biggest concern, which blows my mind now, but my biggest concern was putting out all the people involved in the surgery that morning, if I didn't make a call now, I felt like I needed, no one ever told me this, but I just felt like there's going to be 10 people in that surgery at 9am tomorrow. And if I rock up at 8.30 and say, nah, we're doing the VBAC, I'm contracting, I'm going to put 10 people out like of that. And like, oh my gosh, that is so (laughs) absurd, right? Why? That's not my problem. I should not care about that. But that was my 
big concern overnight was like, I need to make a call. I need to make a call. Like, are we doing this? I need to call my obstetrician. I need to put this surgery off. I so want to try. I was getting all excited, lost my mucus plug. And I was like, God, this is actually happening. Like, let's give this a crack. And so I called him. I finally got onto him. I'd called birth suite and they were like, oh, you have to come in. And I was like, but this is early labor. If I come in now, like, what if this goes on for two days? Like, I don't want to do that. But they were just, you know, like have to come in. And I was like, no, I don't want to. I want to be in a comfortable hotel room right now. So I finally got into my obstetrician. This was like maybe 6 a.m. And I was like, look, this is what's happening. And he was really encouraging. He was like, this sounds really good, Laura. Like he wasn't like, oh, don't worry about it. Got a surgery. He was, he was like fairly encouraging. And then I said to him, look, after all of this, please tell me, because I had this belief that like my cervix was broken. Surely there should be some change in my cervix, right? Like it's been going on for 24 hours. Yes, I can talk through them and breathe through them, but like something should have changed. And he's like, yeah, that it should have. So I was like, sweet. I'm going to go there. I'm going to get checked. They're going to be like, you're two centimeters. And I'm going to be like, yes, amazing. We're doing this. So I get there, nothing, zero centimeters, mm. tight, closed, high cervix. And I was like, I don't understand. I, ca- I cannot wrap my head around what this means. Like what is, my body is just confused. It doesn't know what it's doing. Like I just totally disconnected and was like, can't trust my body. Just got no idea what it's doing. It's doing the wrong thing. Like most people's bodies after this long have had three babies. Like I haven't even dilated. Like I just had such a distrust in my body. So we went ahead and had the cesarean because you know, clearly I was making no progress. And yeah, this time, like I was, oh, actually, no, I think my baby was separated from me again because it ended up being like an emergency. No, it was a repeat. Sorry. It was going to be an emergency. That was actually something now I've just remembered that I was told if you choose to labor and it ends up being an emergency cesarean, you'll be separated from your baby again because of staffing issues. Whereas if you choose to go the elective cesarean, you won't be yeah uh-huh. right Weird. <laughs> and I remember that it felt really important to me to not have my baby away from me for half an hour because mm. I acknowledged after the fact that no that's not right like I'm healthy my baby's healthy they should be with their mum anyway so yeah. that was another thing as like elective c-section is good because the staffing will allow you to have baby with you the whole time so I had the elective C-section. I had my baby with me. We had exactly the same journey. It was beautiful. Breastfeeding was great. Bond was great. All of that. And to be honest, there was a big element of relief for me because I thought, oh, I've had two now. I don't have to think about VBACs anymore. I'm just going to be a C-section mama. Like at least it's not going to be this like constant head, you know, I wanted to swear there, but like mm-hmm. toing and froing and like you know, I, I actually felt a big element of relief, if I'm honest. And then I'll quickly do my third. So then I fell pregnant 10 months later again with my third. And straight away I was like, right, I'm doing a maternal assisted C-section this time. I am pulling the baby out myself. Like I'm going to have some element of control over this, even though I feel like the rest is out of my hands. So I was really, I was going to be that like, again, poster girl for the maternal assisted cesarean section. And I just had this moment with my husband at like maybe eight weeks pregnant and I was about to go to bed. I wasn't even going to say anything, but it just had this bubbling up and I just came out and I said, this feels so wrong. Like I'm healthy. I'm well, I'm young, I'm fit. The thought of just like walking into a surgery to have my baby cut out of me just doesn't feel right. 
And then he just downloaded and was like, well, look, I wasn't going to say anything because I wanted you to go on your journey, but like, this doesn't feel right to me either. Let's explore other options. Wow. Blah, blah. I just like yeah. totally ran with it. But he hadn't wanted to say anything because he didn't want to, you know, like make me feel guilt or like make me feel like I should aim for yeah. it or whatever. So lovely. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. And it was really the kicker I needed because I didn't have the confidence to go, yeah, I can do this. I was so mm. happy to be like, I've tried, which I hadn't really. I hadn't actually done the hard work, but I was like, I've tried, you know, I've tried and it didn't work. So that then started us down this huge like learning curve of understanding the system, understanding care providers, understanding all the beliefs I'd created about my body and how it didn't work and how it couldn't be trusted and how it wasn't built to deliver babies through the birth canal and all these things. And the next 42 weeks was just this massive learning curve of going deeper and deeper and more like within and looking for the answers from me rather than from other people, like having hard conversations with people, having to really self-advocate, having to be misunderstood by so many who didn't understand my motives or desires to want a vaginal birth, who you know, would say things like, oh, it's just a bit of pain and then you have a baby. Like, why bother? Why would you put yourself through that? And I just came to recognize that it's okay if birth means so much more to me than it does to other people. And it's okay if I want something different from this experience than just like going in, having drugs, lying on my back and pushing out a child. Like I knew that there was something out there for me and that it was bigger than the experiences I'd had. And I, I just kept following the breadcrumbs that were leading me to that. And a million things happened on the way and a million different twists and turns and forks in the road. And But essentially it ended with me at 42 weeks laboring at home for three days with my husband and my doula. And it was the hardest, most physically challenging, mentally testing thing I've ever done in my life. And my daughter was born into the water at home and it was like life-changing, like truly most powerful, transformative thing I've ever done. And oh my God, like it gives me goosebumps. I can recall that birth so vividly compared to my other two. Like the, the memory of that, it was like relief mixed with like disbelief that this had actually happened mixed with pride. And like, I felt like you couldn't touch me. I was the strongest person in the world like nothing could push me nothing could sway me because I knew myself and I knew my daughter and you know, we'd been on this unique journey together and we would trusted each other the entire time and I hadn't been scared I hadn't I truly hadn't people ask me like did uterine rupture come into your head but truly none of that ever entered my mind don't get me wrong I had crises of confidence where I was like I can't do this anymore just take me to the hospital I can't do this but it was never fear it was always just like I'm exhausted and I need an out right now um yeah and it's as we were speaking about before this chat like that pregnancy and birth experience truly has changed who I am as a person how I am and show up in the world as a woman as a mother it's it's profound I can't even really articulate just how transformative it was. Mm, wow. Oh, amazing. I feel so inspired and emotional listening to that story. It's so, yeah, so happy that you had that beautiful transformative experience. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Oh, and thanks so much for sharing it with us today. 
Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode with Laura. I adored it so much and was taking so many little pearls of wisdom when listening back through it as I was editing. I especially loved how she spoke about making sure that we keep our bodies moving and not just for the short half an hour burst in a day as we tend to live quite sedentary lives. I've linked everywhere that you can find Laura in the show notes. If you want to check that out, you can also head to the Instagram page at Definitely Baby Podcast to see some beautiful birth photos of Laura. I've also just signed up to Laura's Pregnancy Posse myself as I'd been recommended it by several VBAC mummers. And it's such an excellent resource for all pregnant people, no matter if it's your first pregnancy or whatever your kind of circumstance with your birth plan. So I highly recommend that for anybody. Uh, Yeah, and I'd love to hear your feedback about what you're loving or thinking about the VBAC series so far. And if you've had your own VBAC or on your own journey, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Next week's episode is going to be such a beautiful one. It's our first one of the VBAC stories episodes. So keep your ears out for that one. See you then. Thank you.